Welcome to Baking with House of Bread, and I am your host, Sheila McCann. So today we're going to talk about troubleshooting. It's difficult to come up with like a one-size-fits-all because all doughs are unique. There's categories of doughs, though, and perhaps even subcategories of those. But for this episode, I'm going to talk more about the yeasted traditional pan breads. Um, So these are the lower hydration yeasted breads that generally you're going to use for like sandwiches, the sliced bread. And then I'm going to have other podcasts about more of the harder crusted, higher hydration doughs, such as your multi-day sourdoughs. There's also ciabatta and focaccia that are different. So it's not just you can say, okay, these types of doughs you bake at a high temperature, well, then here's your troubleshooting issues. Um, and so it's a lot more complicated than that. And it's almost like every recipe should have its own little troubleshooting section. And I'll try to do that a little bit more so in the future if I really think something's unique, because there certainly is sometimes a problem with one type of dough that's more common than all the rest. And I know troubleshooting's not that much fun because really the loaf didn't turn out as you hoped. But as in life, we learn the most from our mistakes and the same with baking. I mean, even great bakers still make mistakes. It's just part of the bread making journey. And what I try to tell my bakers when they make a mistake, because I have really good bakers, but that doesn't mean that they don't make a mistake here and there. I mean, they are human. It's part part of being <laughs> a person. You make mistakes. So, but same time as I want them to learn from that. What I always say is that the true test of an excellent baker is one that knows how to correct their own mistakes, right? Because we all make them. And so trying to identify early on in the bread making process where something's not right so you can have time to fix it. What you want to do is document what you did during the production process, especially for the new bakers, because that's really going to help you go back and figure out what went wrong and where you need to tweak, you know, maybe the timing of the kneading or the timing of the proofing or the baking. So there's so many different issues that could have happened that resulted in the loaf. You want to record what you did and, and then it'll help you also mimic it again in the future. To this day, I still enter my bakery with, I call it the one minute manager. And I go in and the main thing I'm looking for, besides that, you you walk in, is there trash outside in front? You know, are the labels up on the breads? Then I go walk around and I take a look at the breads that came out of the oven and then the pastries and display cases. And what I'm looking at is to see if there's anything that needs another level of investigation. First brush is just by looks. And so I'm looking to see if the loaves are are large enough or they're too squatty, you know, basically what happened. More often than not, and when it's an obvious mistake, like the baker forgot something important, like the main leavening agent, which would be your yeast, your baking powder, soda. And it's pretty obvious at that point. For really bad bakers, (laughs) they don't accept responsibility and they try to blame it on things like, oh, I just don't know what happened. You know, so uh, maybe it was the yeast. And 
you know, the problem. Okay, so I really kind of have an issue with this because I accept like the human condition, we make mistakes, but it's more bothersome to me when they can't take responsibility for it and say, hey, okay, yeah, let's try to figure out what happened wrong with this loaf. Someone who is a baker who tried to deny his responsibility, they're not likely not going to be a baker very long for me because that is how we learn in life, right? So we analyze what we did, learn from our mistakes, and then we all move forward. If you're not trying, if you're not willing to look at yourself and where you might have contributed to the mistake, then, you know, quite frankly, you have, you have other issues that I'm not going to be able to solve as the bakery owner. <laughs> so I just soon start with another baker. Ironically, it's often the bakers that come to me with experience, right? So they've got a little bit of an ego attached to them and then they can't admit to making a mistake. I make mistakes all the time. You know, so I try to tell them, okay, it's okay, it's okay, let's just move forward. Anyway, first look at yourself. Did you forget to add an ingredient? If it's like I said, you're going to be able to tell right away if it was the yeast when the thing doesn't grow on you. And you can fix that. So once, once you mix it, and let's say you forgot the yeast, you know, you come back to your dough an hour later and it hasn't moved at all. Okay, so give it enough time. Don't come back to Don't keep watching it like 15 minutes later or it hasn't moved. It hasn't moved. Give it some time to actually for the yeast to start working its magic, right? And let's say it hasn't moved at all and you've given it well over an hour. Um, well, then chances are you forgot the yeast. What I would recommend doing is to add it at that point. And how I would do that is I would take whatever yeast amount it called for in the recipe and I would put it in like a quarter cup of water. And the reason I want you to put it in water is because it's going to distribute more easily in the dough. It's really hard to, you know, let's say you're using a dry yeast, which most home bakers use, right? Or even if you're using fresh compressed yeast, which is what we use at the bakery. It doesn't matter. So if you, if you throw it in the yeast in and you put it on in the mixer, it's really hard for that yeast to activate in that dough properly. So that's why I've learned to add some water with it. And then, of course, when you add water to a dough, you're going to have to add a corresponding amount of flour. So you kind of have to offset the amount of water you added with that yeast that you forgot. So I recommend at least a quarter cup. And then you're likely going to have to add a two to one ratio. So if you put a quarter cup in of water, you're going to have to add like a half a cup of flour. The other thing is, is that if you forget to add in the salt, it's a little harder to tell. And so what a telltale sign is, it's after the loaf is baked. And if the salt was missing, it's usually a little bit larger than no, normal. So when I come into my bakery and I see like whatever, the nine grain or the grandma's white, and it's, it's just bigger than normal, I'm suspicious it could either be that it got overproofed, right? They let it sit out too long or they forgot the salt. Fortunately for us, we have a sample board. So I'll put a loaf out there and I'll try it. And if you forgot the salt, it's readily apparent because the whole loaf tastes flat. You can't taste the other flavors and it's just not sellable. And really, I don't even recommend eating it at that point. I would just chalk it up to a learning curve and then put it in the pile. So if it's more of a savory loaf 
or plain loaf, you could use it for croutons. And let's say it's more of a sweeter loaf, like a cinnamon swirl or something like that, then that'll make really good bread pudding. And I will cover bread pudding and croutons in a future episode and to give you something to do with those learning curves for loaves that didn't turn out quite as you would have liked. One thing I overheard one of my bakers saying, it was kind of funny, he was training another baker and he said to him, you know, think of salt and yeast as your friends. They must be invited to the dough party. I, I thought that was kind of funny because one, he was, you know, he's like 22 years old. So of course, <laughs> having a party was, you know, right up his alley. And two, he was like, oh, you got to invite your friends. But you know what? He was right. And that really stuck in my mind. And I heard that, you know, over well over a decade ago. But it's like they are your friends and you do need them in the dough for it to be fun. And fun is not necessarily the party itself. It's when you get a loaf that turns out. I've also had another baker that that came in and she was really proud of herself for doing a great job that day. And she said she only forgot one item. Of course, the item she forgot happened to be the, the necessary item in the batch. It wasn't like she was making garden herb and just forgot the time. No, she forgot the salt. The whole thing had to be made into croutons. And so I had to let her know that no, that's not a great job. That's not even a good job. I mean, there's so many other variables in the baking process that you've got to manage. Like to forget an added ingredient is just not acceptable. You know, I didn't fire and she did end up turning out to be a very good baker. But I really had to set her straight that, okay, here's your standard. I mean, your standard is excellence, right? You're never going to achieve excellence if you don't set the standard at excellence. And notice, I didn't say perfection. Right. So it'll drive you nuts to try to be perfect, but really try to strive for excellence. And it's something that you always have to kind of push and work at to maintain excellence, because otherwise we can all be be pretty good at anything. I mean, being pretty good is not that hard. Being excellent is takes much more of a concerted effort. And what I had told her that a good job is you bake everything right that day and the whole week. You know, a pretty good job is if you make a mistake like every other week. But if you're making one mistake every day, that's not good. That's not good at all. It just costs me money. And so sometimes it, it's worth explaining to staff members that, hey, you know, there's this much cost into that loaf and this much labor and I didn't get any sales. So this is kind of a no-win situation. I won't be in business much longer if we if this if we continue down this road and and most people and bakers, I mean, they really are caring and they care about you and your business and whatever else. And so you just got to get them motivated to see the bigger picture. You know, we're here in the baking to do it right, produce great products and to sell them, you know? So I like owning a bakery and I got into it from practicing law, which wasn't so much fun. Um, because it's a really positive experience. I sell them a great loaf and then they're happy to buy it and I'm happy to sell it. It's a win-win situation. Now, it doesn't really quite work that way if I sell them something that's not so great. So I'm very careful not to do so. Um, And it's tempting, especially commercially, to sell something because people will often buy it. Um, So let's say it's just not up to par to your standards of excellence 
but still pretty good. And then you you find yourself justifying it. Well, you know, they want to buy it and they say it's okay. And no, you really are. You just shoot yourself in the foot because business is really about repeat customers. And so if they go home with a loaf that was overbaked a bit, they're just going to think, okay, bread wasn't that good. Kind of dry, you know, or it didn't last that long. They're not likely to come back. How I try to explain it to my staff, my franchisees, is that you're really asking a lot for someone to take that shopping cart and go down that supermarket aisle and keep going because there's like, you know, 30 different types of bread they can buy there. And so it's interesting because I started House of Bread in 1996 and that really wasn't the case. There was only like a few loaves, different loaves in the grocery store and they were really bad. I mean, they're still pretty bad, don't get me wrong, but the quality has improved and the variety certainly has. And it's really a trust issue. So you have to recognize that your customers trust you and they also will forgive you if you make a mistake, but they're not going to forgive you if you lower your standard and try to pass something off on them. And I know you home bakers, you know, you're not necessarily trying to sell your products, but still I think of it this way is that Try to set your st standard as excellence and don't think it's going to get there right away because just it's part of life. You know, there's a, a, a way to get there, but it will take some time and patience. And that's actually if you look at it this way. So you can spin this. That's the challenge of bread making. But it's also why it's so much fun and much more interesting because it's not so cut and dry. I mean, you know, really, if you screw up a cookie recipe, it's kind of easy to figure it out, but not so much with baking bread because there's so many variables of timing and temperature. First, I'm going to go over the baking. If the product isn't baked properly, I mean, obviously it's kind of underbaked or overbaked. And in what happens in my bakery is the bakers sometimes get in a hurry or they think they know when the bread is properly baked and they don't take the temperature of it. So it can easily be remedied by poking the middle of the loaf in the bottom and it needs to come up past 180. Okay, so that's when dough turns into bread. Five to $10 investment and basically any grocery store is gonna have one of these bread thermometers and that's a really easy way. Now, if it's overbaked, I can usually tell by the color. Okay, so it's a little bit darker than it should be. The other thing is, is that if it's underbaked, it's also kind of easy to tell because the loaves lack structure and they're kind of falling into themselves. That could also be too low of an oven temperature too. If the loaves aren't standing up straight, you know, they're, they're cooling on a wire rack. If they're not standing up straight, they're kind of collapsing a little bit. It likely is underbaked. I put it on the sample board and I cut into the middle of it. And you also have to let it cool enough to do this test because if you take a warm loaf and you cut during the middle, it's almost like that steam that the uh, loaf is emitting, it kind of makes it doughy again. So give it a little time to cool, then slice it in the middle and you'd be able to see, right? You know what doughy texture looks like and that's where it will be underbaked is in the middle. And at that point, you're pretty much going to have to take that loaf and put it in the bread pudding or crouton pile. Now, let's say you just slightly overbake it how you can tell by the color, right? So let's just say that it your loaf comes out harder, you know, um, and sometimes it's your oven, especially if you're baking in somebody else's oven, 
and you set it at 350, right? Thinking the thing's at 350 or 450 or whatever baking is. And turns out it isn't. So remember, those gauges in those home ovens are not very accurate. And quite frankly, they're not much accurate in commercial bakeries, too. So we buy an oven thermometer, kind of move it around in the oven, and we'll find hot spots and whatnot else. So the temperature gauges is a, a really good way to know what actual temperature you're baking in. And also to the final product, what temperature it was when it came out of the oven. So a little trick, if you end up overbaking a little bit, excuse me, if you end up overbaking just a little bit, you can remedy the situation by putting it into a plastic bag a little bit earlier than you normally would. What I mean by that is still slightly warm, and then you can put it in a plastic bag and you'll get a slight condensation that kind of softens up the crust a little bit. It will produce a salvageable loaf. Now, keep in mind, one of the more common issues that happens is people bag bread too early when it still is slightly warm. And then what happens is, is that you get a bunch of condensation in the bag and it basically will take that loaf and turn it gummy, which looks like doughy because we've gotten loaves that come back and they come back and they say, this loaf was underbaked. And I'll take a look at the loaf. And a lot of times I will know by looking at it, um, that really wasn't underbaked. The problem was is that they, they bag the loaf of bread too early before it had time to completely cool and let it, and sold it. And so you want to make sure that you wait, let the bread cool completely, preferably on a wire rack, before you end up putting it into a bag. For home bakers, the other baking consideration is how, how full their home ovens are during the baking process because generally your ovens are smaller, right? So if the loaves are baked on one side and maybe not the other, or if you see even, it'll almost be um, not just baked, but it's also too, it'll be bigger. The loaf will be unevenly shaped. It'll be kind of be flowing out more on one side than the other. And, and that's likely because there wasn't enough room around the dough when it was baking. So my general rule is just a fist. So it should be a full fist apart around the pan to another pan of bread. You can also try to remedy it by stopping halfway through the baking process and turning the loaves around. But really, that's kind of a hassle. I would just make sure that you're not overstuffing the oven and give yourself a good fist to part all the breads. And the other issue I see is not allowing the oven to get to temperature before putting products in there to bake. And what happens is the loaves, what they're going to do is they're going to keep rising, right? So they're still proofing in the oven and it gets overflowed. And then you end up with overproofed dough. And it, really what it is, is it falls apart on you too. So you want to turn your oven on in advance, let it get up to temperature before you put your breads in there to be baked. I'm going to assume now that you didn't forget any ingredients right? And you bake the loaf properly. And now I'm going to discuss the other ingredients in the basic loaves of bread and the process variables like timing and temperature, and then try to go through each one. Okay, so for the flours, what I've often see new bakers, they come into my baking classes and I'll ask them, so let's, let's talk about um, some of the loaves that you've made at home and what went wrong. And really most often is they'll tell me that the loaves were short and dense and squatty. That is a sign of a underdeveloped loaf. 
And so I'll ask them what type of flour they're using. And a lot of times they're using all-purpose flour. And you would think all-purpose flour is, in fact, all-purpose, but really isn't. And so all-purpose flour is a lower gluten content. And it's something that you definitely want to use with items that don't contain yeast. And there is a time for all-purpose flour in yeasted breads, but it really is more of the shorter, dense, kind of more of the artisan's harder crusted style loaves that you want to consider using all-purpose flour. But the general, especially on these type of breads I'm talking about in this troubleshooting podcast, which is your pan breads, your sandwich breads, is you need to start with a bread flour. Now, some bakers will talk about adding vital wheat gluten. It's like cheating. Like you get a strong dough without much effort. But if you listen to me in other episodes especially episode one when I cover flowers in a lot more depth. I hate to see home bakers use vital wheat gluten. And there really are very few absolutes in baking. But this is one for me because really it's about health. And the beauty of home baking is we control what we're putting in our bodies. And you can make choices based upon health that is often not considered in mass-produced breads. And the problem with phytogluten is it's a super condensed, unnatural amount of gluten that's processed. And really, you're adding it to your body that can wreak havoc on your digestive system. I mean, I really believe that our bodies are just amazing. I mean, really, really, we are built amazing. And I don't want to get too, you know, I'm not going to get into religion with you. Certainly not going to get into politics. But I, I will tell you is that The body is built and designed to handle bread. And so I hear sometimes like, oh, the wheat belly and then like, oh, bread's so bad for you. But really isn't. What's bad for us is is when we take mother nature and we screw around with it. And so the closer you get back to nature in your ingredients and your products, I firmly believe it's better for your body. And so the vital wheat gluten is a super condensed form of gluten that was not naturally intended to be in a loaf of bread. And plus, you really don't need it. Just take the time to learn to make bread properly and forget about the vital wheat gluten. And your digestive system will thank you. Okay, so second most common mistake for new bakers is they dry the dough out too much. And so the doughs should start out sticky people usually come to the bread making world after they've made muffins or cookies and they're not used to having to feel things and they're not used to that uncomfortable feeling of dough sticking to your hands. And so what do they do? They add flour. And I've learned to be very careful in the initial stages of my baking classes, because if you don't watch it, they're, they're putting their hands in the flour and they're, they're, they're really just trying to avoid that stickiness. And so I got to tell them, stop. Uh, uh-uh. uh, And then they want to go wash their hands all the time. (laughs) I mean, not that washing your hands is a bad thing, right? Especially during COVID. (laughs) We've been told how we should wash our hands. But at the same time is when you're kneading the bread and it's sticking to you, you can't go wash your hands. That's not going to solve the issue. And so you may have to add flour, but make sure you're only adding, at the most, a tablespoon at at a time. And also, too, doughs take time to absorb moisture. You'll have a sticky dough and it's sticking to you and just keep with it. And then what you'll see, then all of a sudden it's not so sticky. 
because with time, it absorbed that excess moisture. And keep in mind on your whole grain breads, it even takes longer to absorb that moisture. So you just kind of have to stick with it and see what happens. Um, so don't overcorrect in the beginning, just give it some time. My general rule is your white base spreads, if you're using the machine, about five to eight minutes. If you're doing it by hand, just add a couple more minutes, unless you're a really good kneader. Because, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I can pretty much knead faster than uh, a, a machine. Gauge that when you're working with it. The other thing is, is the whole grain breads just add a couple more minutes. And so what I do as general rule for home bakers, Start with five to eight minutes in your white base breads, it's wheat breads, then seven to 10, and that's with a mixer. If you're doing it by hand, then add two more minutes to that equation, unless you're a really good kneader. Third most common mistake for home bakers I see is the kneading time, as they don't knead long enough. So again, most people come from the bread baking world from the pastry world or cookies. And in that environment, you barely mix the items because you want to avoid developing the gluten. And so they get that in their mindset. Oh, I need to barely mix this when really, no, you, you, you have to, you, you have to develop those gluten strands and that involves mixing or kneading, if you will. When and dad, I always tell new bakers is to, add more water and need longer. And honestly, that usually tends to uh, help them. They just think of those two things. And I know that's really a simple way of addressing this whole troubleshooting issue because those are much more complicated and there's a lot more things that could go on and wrong, unfortunately. Just start out recognizing that the dough is going to be lumpy and it's going to be wet. But as you're kneading, it will soon grow a little smoother, more supple, and it'll be a little bit springy. And I can tell if the dough has reached the good dough stage, quite frankly, by just by looking in my mixer bowl. But it took a long time to get there. And, and what, I'm looking, what I'm seeing is it's kind of that smooth satiny finish, and I'm not seeing lumps. But I really tell for new bakers is start to feel it, right? And so take, you know, your dough ball and start pulling on it. And it should stretch rather than just easily pull apart. And that's how you know you fully developed your gluten network and you can stop the kneading. And the other test is your window pane test. And what that is, is where you take a small amount of the dough and you basically pull, pull it apart. And you should get to the point where you can actually kind of see light through it, right? You're not gonna watch a movie through the dough. <laughs> so your window pane test, it's not really like a window. It's just a matter of stretching. You can see light through it and then eventually it will break. That's a little more advanced. You know, kind of just think of this smooth satiny and the dough will stretch and chances are you're good to go and you can stop kneading. And I don't know of any home bakers that over kneaded their doughs by hand. I'm sure it's happened, but really you would really have to sit there for a long time of kneading because you're just not going to um, affect it like a machine. And so where I have seen over mixed doughs and it happens in our bakery is where they'll turn the mixer on and then they're busy you know they're pulling breads out of the oven they got other doughs that are proofing and they're dividing or whatever else is going on and then it sits under the mixer for a long time and what happens is that machine produces friction 
friction produces heat. And so the end result is the dough is too warm. And the bigger the batch, the more likely this is to happen. And so if you're dealing with 10 pounds of dough, it's not really that much mass and you can overmix a little bit. It's not going to take the dough up to a higher temperature. But if you're dealing with 100 pounds of dough and you overmix it by a couple minutes, it's so much mass. It's all that heat that gets generated. It's not a good thing. And how you can tell if it was over mixed and keep in mind, it's usually with a mixer is that the end result is the loaf is a little short, short and squatty. Um, but more important, the bigger telltale sign is it's got like pockmarks on the top of the loaf. And so it's like bigger, tiny, well, they're still tiny holes, but you're not going to see those. Should, the loaf should come out smooth on top. And if you see like little tiny holes all over the top um, and it's kind of rough, what happened was is the dough got into the oven and um, it, it, it's a whole proofing process was accelerated. Right. So the carbon dioxide was emitting on a rapid rate. Anyway, so your end result, you got pockmarks on top. And, and you also you can kind of you can tell by taste, too, and because it's going to taste drier and it's going to crumble a little bit easier. And so this is the harder thing about troubleshooting. So just because it's crumbly doesn't in and of itself mean that it was over needed. It could have been that wasn't needed long enough. Because you didn't develop the gluten content, it falls apart on you. That's why you have to really go back and record exactly what you did. And like I said, if it's overmixed, generally you'll see pockmarks on the loaf. And if it's undermixed, it's still going to end up drying crumbly, but you won't have those pockmarks on top. If you think of it this way, there's two main issues that go on in loaves. I mean, the troubleshooting is a very wide topic. But the really the most issues are after baker error, because baker error is usually number one. Start there. They're forgetting stuff um, or they're over or under baking. But after that, it really is the dough is either underdeveloped, which is a short squatty loaf. Or it's overdeveloped where the loaf is really big and it has holes in it and falls apart on you. I mean, you want holes in certain doughs, but you don't want it in your sandwich loaves. And so if they come back with a honey hole wheat with a hole in it, there's a problem. Now, for the French baguettes, I really want holes. There's a problem if there is no holes. <laughs> okay, so that's a different type of bread and dough. And like I said, I'll discuss that on troubleshooting in a, in a future episode. On the pan breads, it's, so it's under developed or it's overdeveloped. And I'm going to try to take each element of the dough process and talk about how it can go one way or the other. So there's time. So you have the rising time and you also have the kneading time. And so what I mean by rising time, that's also your fermentation time or your proofing time. Um, that's after you mix it and the dough sits there, right? So it sits there before shaping. And then there's a second rising time. Generally, after you shape your doughs, you usually get a little bit more time before it goes into the oven. If your loaf turns out short and dense, was there not enough rising or kneading time or was there too much? And I want to pause and have you think about the answer. If it's short and dense loaf, was there not enough rising or kneading time or too much? Well, the answer in most cases, there was not enough proofing time 
or not enough kneading time, and the end result is a short, dense loaf. Now here's where it gets complicated. <laughs> if it's seriously overproofed, your dough gets so weak and it'll deflate on you, which also ends up with a really short, dense loaf that is virtually inedible. And so you can taste, so you can taste an overproofed loaf and it usually tastes yeastier than normal. Okay, now we're going on to temperature. So you have the temperature of the water or whatever liquid you're putting into your dough and also the air. Now your liquid, it should be warm in these type of breads. Okay, so if you're doing a artisan sourdough, that's not necessarily the case because you want to do a cold fermentation, so you're not going to put hot water in there. You want to slow down the process to coax out more flavor and to allow that sourdough starter to become more sour. But once again, I'm talking about pan breads here. You want to have a warm liquid and that will produce a nice environment for the yeast to work its magic. And I like to shoot for about 100 to 105, 105 degrees. If you choose to use a thermometer, you don't need to. Just turn on your faucet and let it get warm to the point where it's really nice and warm, like a warm bath water. It's not too hot. Like you could do your dishes with it, you know, that kind of thing. But it's not something that you put, you put it in the microwave and it comes out boiling. That's going to kill your yeast. And what's going to happen then, you're going to get a, um, well, it could not just kill it. Sometimes it just compromises it. So if the water is way too hot, it's too hot for your hands, it's going to be too hot for the yeast. If it's way too hot, what happens is that the yeast might work a little bit, but it really is not going to get full performance and your loaf will be short, dense, and squatty. The temperature of the water or liquid, think of it as very warm bath water. Okay, on the air part, generally your doughs really like about 75 degrees. But you don't need to turn on the heat in your house if it's 60 degrees. What you want to do is just consider the air temperature and how long you let the dough proof. The cooler the air, the longer it's going to take to proof. And if it's warmer, it's going to happen a little bit quicker. The other thing is, is that they do have proofing temperatures in ovens. And I also read about people or people tell me also too, that they will turn their oven on and then turn it off and then put their doughs in there to proof. You can do that, but I'm not really a fan because it, it, it's just one more thing that could go wrong. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that chances are that oven temperature is not going to be a perfect 75 to 90 degrees. If it's too hot, you're going to add another chance for it to turn out poorly for you. And what I mean by that is that you can't try to shorten the proofing process by, by increasing the heat. And, and trust me, we've kind of tried this, right? So let's say we got a special order, you know, that needs to be picked up at 10 o'clock and then, okay, we forgot about that mix. So we put the mixer on, get it mixed at about nine o'clock and thinking we can divide it a little bit earlier and just kind of shortcut the whole proofing process by, you know, putting the dough, the loaves of bread, you know, closer to the oven, which you can do a certain degree. I look at it this way. You can turn up the volume and down the volume on the time for proofing or fermenting by trying to control your temperature a little bit better. But you can certainly kill the dough by 
putting it into an oven that's too warm. So that's why I would just soon leave your temperature as it is. I mean, if you got a nice sunny spot in your house, then great. Put it in a sunny spot or a warmer spot, but resist the temptation to try to make it hotter for the dough. So hotter is not necessarily better. Lastly, you don't want to put it next to the heater. I can tell you that my husband did this. <laughs> so we have an outdoor pizza oven. And so I did teach him how to make the doughs and he's actually done a pretty good job. Anyway, so he puts, we have also a uh, pot belly stove, not stove, what do you call it? It's a fireplace. And so he puts, <laughs> he, he makes his dough, then he puts it on top of the, this fireplace that it was too hot. And, and so it was kind of, a, I'm like, what is he doing? Well, it's a, it was a mess by the time I figured out, you know, where the doughs were. So it's not good to put it by your doughs by heat when it's proofing. So don't put it by a heater on top of a, <laughs> a, a pot belly fireplace. And you just want it to let it grow whatever air is in your home. Now, I'm assuming you're not one of those people that likes 100 degree homes or, <laughs> or you like, you know, 40 degree homes. So I'm talking within reason. So if your house is somewhere between 60 and 90 degrees, just consider that in your rising time. The other area of temperature is in the other ingredients. So for example, we have a spinach mozzarella bread and you put in the mozzarella and spinach at the time of mixing. If you don't have fresh spinach, often people will use frozen spinach, which is totally fine. But that frozen item needs to be thawed in the microwave or oven where you want to thaw it, and it needs to be drained. And, and so I can't have cold spinach going into the dough at the time of mixing because it turns the whole dough cold and it affects the fermentation process. So it's not like you can say, oh, well, I'm just going to let it rise a little bit longer because I used frozen spinach. It doesn't work that way. And um, so the dough itself will not be consistent in temperature. It's not going to be consistent rising time and just don't do it. All right. So the other thing that I see happen is in some of our, for example, raspberry swirl. So we use the grandma's white recipe and then on the table is, so after it's already risen for this first hour and a half or so. So then we divide it up and then we'll add this raspberry swirl mixture on the table. And the raspberries we use are usually, well, we get like a 30 pound frozen box and they're IQF, which is individually quick frozen. And, and then we add sugar with it and then we'll use it periodically. It'll, it'll sit in the refrigerator. And, and so the bakers will pull it out to go mix the, into the grandma's white dough to make raspberry swirl. Well, the problem is if they don't let that ra raspberry thaw out to room temperature or warm it up in the microwave a little bit, is that where the cold raspberries are, it won't ferment or rise properly, number one. So there's that issue. Um, and then the second issue comes in the baking process. So often it'll be doughy, it'll be underbaked where the raspberries were, and it'll show up, you know, 185 degrees or wherever. So it's properly baked wherever they poke that thermometer, but they didn't hit the doughy part by the raspberry. And, and then to get the whole thing to reach 100, over 180 or to be properly baked, you've got to overbake, right? So you've got to overbake certain parts of the dough to get the cold part where the raspberries were to bake enough. Again, avoid 
that issue by just putting in whatever items you're going to put into your dough, whether it's at the mixing stage or after the first rising time, it should be room temperature. And you can also kind of keep in mind is if you're talking about one egg, it doesn't matter. Okay, it's such a small amount. So if you pull an egg out of the refrigerator and you throw it into your dough, it's, it's going to be fine. So don't worry about it too much. It might affect it just very slightly, but really it's not that big of a deal. What we're finding is that with troubleshooting issues, there often can be more than one cause of a particular problem. And, and that's why it's a little more challenging. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly what went wrong, which is why I recommend you start by recording the timing and temperature points of your recipes. And I'm also happy to help do this, you know, quite frankly, for all my franchisees and my bakers is, um, and sometimes also too, I'll burn right by my bakers because I don't always, you know, have all the answers for sure. But I can tell a lot if I have a photo of the item. So it's difficult for me to tell when someone describes it and the picture is a lot more effective. And so you're welcome to send those to me. What I want though is if you're going to send me an email and you want me to troubleshoot what went wrong in your loaf, I, like I said, I'm happy to do so. But one, I need photos. And then I also need to have the recipe with it and what the timing and temperature notes were. And then I can go back and try to help you figure it out and make some suggestions to try next time. Because it really is a matter, sometimes it's just a small tweak will, will solve all the issue. And like I said earlier, I'm going to cover other types of dough, like your artisan lean doughs, your sourdoughs, your quick breads in other troubleshooting episodes. But I just want to leave this troubleshooting section with some words of encouragement. Please don't give up. Um, I really think that you're going you're gonna to get it. And if you look at it this way is that, you know, if it was so easy, it wouldn't be as much fun, right? So it is harder to bake bread. And so expect to make mistakes. Expect to have your learning curves. And like I said, I will come up with another episode on what you can do with those learning curves, you know, the bread, the croutons and the bread pudding. But this time, just, just think of it as this way. It really is an art and you can learn it. You just have to be patient. And you have to be diligent. And I'm very confident that you're going to get there. And besides, most often the mistakes are still going to taste pretty good. And if not, you're going to have a good base for some croutons and bread pudding. And I can tell you is that one thing that I like about this baking industry, <laughs> I mean, for the most part, you know, I, so I used to be a public defender. It was a lot of stress involved. And what I remind myself when something goes wrong in the bakery it's, you know, because you're dealing with people, right? And that's how we are. We make mistakes. This is, this is our human condition, so to speak. So I just remind myself, you know what? And I'll even tell my bakers, especially if I can sense the baker that feels bad about what happened. And more often than not, they do because they know they made a mistake and they feel bad because they realize that there was a cost involved. Um, and I don't really want them to feel bad. I mean, I don't want, you know, I, I want them to recognize they made a mistake and to learn from it and grow on. But what I'll kind of tell them, I said, Hey, you know what? No one died, right? And no one's going to jail. <laughs> so, you know, just remember, put it in perspective. It's just bread, folks. And on that note, happy baking, everybody.